0: Welcome to Mimeo's Talk of the Trade. I'm Mike McNary. In addition to leading the sales organization here at Mimeo, I'm also interested in unlocking the secrets of sales and marketing. In each episode, I talk with creative leaders to find out how they approach problems like motivating sales teams, structuring the revenue cycle, and fitting product to market. At the end of the conversation, you and I have new takeaways to apply to our everyday life. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey everyone. Mike McNary here with another episode of Mimeo's Talk of the Trade. Today's episode is called The Psychology Behind RFPs in Business Proposals, Insights into Personal and Group Psychology that Motivates Sellers and Buyers in Complex Deals. Our guest for today's episode is Eve Upton. Eve is the business-winning consultant at Bidcraft. Eve, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Oh, I'm excited to be here.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to mix an interest in psychology with complex sales, Eve.
1: I started off like every annoying toddler going, yeah, but why, daddy? Which probably drove dad insane. Um, But that became a, a deep interest in why do people do what they do and how... How can we help them change what they do and how do we manipulate them in a nice way? So I got this wild idea. I would um, study psychology at university and become this TV character from the time called Cracker. He was a criminal psychologist. So he ran around solving crimes and drinking whiskey and it just sounded (laughs) ace. But of course, Cracker's not real because he was on the TV. So I had to actually go and get a real job. Um, And I, I went into IT because everybody worked in IT back then. And I was accidentally drafted onto a massive government bid early in my UDS career. And I loved it. So I wheedled my way through my mentor into account management and did that for a few years and then eventually got into complex sales because that was the biggest challenge and and the best thing to play with. So, um, that yeah, but why stayed with me the whole time and it's so critical in sales, getting to the core of what that client problem is and how we can win and beat the competition. So, psychology never goes away and people are always fascinating. So, the two things for me just worked perfectly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And um, I can relate that moment when you realize you, you've got to get a real job, right? It's such a bummer, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's inevitably an opportunity that, that comes afterwards. So uh, good for you, Eve. And, and I really like that story. Uh, for, for those of uh, uh, in our audience that don't know much about Bidcraft, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about the services that your organization offers?
1: Absolutely. And and you may have noticed um, I'm English and we're based (laughs) in the UK. So um, we're there for clients basically for for three main things. So when they face a really complex public sector, federal bid, and they need to know how to win, we can come in and help them. Or... They do already know how to win, but they need someone to do that, that critical friend, that leave no stone unturned type of action where we can come in and just make sure they've done everything they need to do. Um, And that's great because you're reviewing things and then saying your presentation sucks, make it better. Or the company might need to build the capability or improve what they have. So we come in and we make that change happen um, and been doing a lot of that recently. And that's great fun.
0: Hey, yeah, I'd imagine the services are incredibly valuable, right? Getting a leg up and making sure that you're putting your best foot forward on these potentially high-value uh, you know, opportunities for revenue and, and just long-term mm-hmm. contracts. It, it, it's got to be big, and, and i sure a lot of people are seeking you out. Uh, if anybody in our audience wanted to, say, get in touch with you, Eve, or to learn more about Bidcraft, how would they do that?
1: Oh, the easiest way is probably LinkedIn. There aren't many Eve Uptons on LinkedIn, so you should be able to find me. Just look for okay. the Brit in Bidcraft.
0: And, and I like
1: meeting new people.
0: Okay. You heard that, audience. So uh, find Eve on LinkedIn and uh, she'll, she'll respond, which is always nice too. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you enjoy most about that job on a day-to-day, what you're doing uh, with Bidcraft with your customers?
1: I think at the core of everything we do um, is this phrase, which is bid like you mean it. If you're going to do it, Mm. absolutely put everything into it. Do it for the right reasons. Put your heart and soul into it. Just bid like you mean it. And I like the fact that we're brought in to make that change, make the good trouble and really get in there, break the right rules for the right reasons so people can actually win and do things properly. So yeah, bid like you mean it is, is what I love.
0: I like that. Like that, I think it's a good mantra. Right, put put everything into it if you expect to win. Right, absolutely. Um, so, so let's dig into you know the the psychology uh, of selling in in these complex uh, scenarios, Eve, a little bit further. Um, mm. Why don't we talk about the buying committee uh, to start? Mm. Um, you know the the psychology uh, of people we're selling to. You know, are there any general commonalities in the psychology of selling to a group rather than an individual?
1: Absolutely. And, and with complex sales and in the public sector, especially, they are structured to try and remove that subjectivity and any possibility of Bob making that deal with a salesperson that winds and dines them. Right. So we, we've got to try and use psychology to make that subjectivity come back. We want to make them like us and want to build a relationship with us but procurement want to take that relationship out of the picture. So the most important thing when we're dealing with that evaluation committee is to get the highest score. That's how they're going to make the decision. So that sounds incredibly objective, but it's not because we're animals, we're humans. And Only a tiny part of what we do follows that deep, rational consideration. We just don't have the time or energy to face the world the way a computer would and make that lovely, rational decision based on the scores. We make shortcuts. We have biases. We all know about biases. And we fall for tricks. So as salespeople, we need to understand how we can use what we know what we know about that client and what we know about that whole committee ethically, obviously, every right. time right. to get the result we want. So, so we use the psychology to get high scores and, and win their hearts and minds. And when there's that borderline case between a school one school band and another, we want them to love us and go with us. So I've got some examples. Um, it, this is all massively simplified, obviously, but it's to give you the idea of the kind of thing we can do. So there was some research by Nielsen Norman Group, and this was, they call the F pattern. So what they did is they set up some software to eye track. So, you know, when your eye is bouncing around a page and they tracked the eyes of people across millions of pages. And what they found is the eyes moved in an F pattern. So you read that first heading you read a little bit of the first paragraph and then you bounce to the next heading and then you bounce again. So people mm. aren't reading the whole of that page right. in a nice rational way. They're just jumping around because you you kind of move. So this means we need to use that understanding and we'll make sure that heading is incredibly important Get the bottom line up front we know this we know bottom line up front but this is why this is why we use bold on certain words in a document and you use graphics to stop people's eyes so we can apply that and there's good things like the mere exposure effect so the more we see something the more we recall it so if you buy a red car you see red cars everybody and think about bad actors out there. They repeat a lie until it's almost the truth. Now, we don't want to do that. We don't want to repeat lies. But if there are certain words and phrases you want that reader to remember and associate with you, quality, whatever it is, then use them frequently. Put them in bold. Use alliteration. Do whatever you can to make that stick in their head um, because that way you can you can make them come away from your bid and they're not going to remember it all, but they might remember those few words that you put in front of them repeatedly.
0: It can make all and the difference.
1: It, it, it can, because if they're looking at six different, 20 different proposals mm-hmm. and they've got a certain amount of time to go through them, you want to stop them and give them those few things you, they need to go away with rather than just thinking, they're gonna rationally read the whole thing and score it objectively. No, no, no. That team of people need to be given everything they can to just remember you and think of you more than everybody else.
0: It's really interesting, and you're right. People can't can't operate in that completely rational zone, right? No. It's just not within our. We'd love to be able to do it in so many instances in our lives, both you know, professional and personal, but it just doesn't work that way, right?
1: No, absolutely. And when we're busy, it's even worse when we're we don't have the time and energy to do it. And we've all got biases and we're all mm-hmm. easily influenced and persuaded. So why not use that ethically? I always keep coming back to the yeah.
0: ethically because no, I'm worried people will think. No, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. And I, I notice those idiosyncrasies that I have personally. So mm. I'd imagine that, you know, other folks have their own that may be similar or mm-hmm. entirely unique to them and their, their, their personalities. Well, let me ask you this, Eve, how many, you know, bid writing teams do you think, you know, percentage wise are really attentive to these kind of psychological concepts in a way that make their bids more effective or are many teams working kind of in the dark when it relates to the, the psychology component?
1: Oh, I think I think it's starting it's starting to come out and be out there with more people talking about things like this. And you see a lot of interest actually from the audiences because, We're humans and we like thinking about humans. But you're right. Most teams either will be just writing um, or if they're any good, they will have learned some best practices. And those best practices, some of those are actually underpinned by psychology. But there's not a huge amount of research that's been targeted at bidding and at writing. So I think there's, there's a lot more we could do there. Because what we do, tend to do is just take psychology that's adjacent and apply it in the best way we can to writing and think about it
0: that way. I wonder if these buying teams even understand why they went in certain directions sometimes, right? <laughs> Their feedback may be actionable or it might even be, in other instances, uh, perception versus reality, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely. And they've got to justify their decision. They've got to justify it up internally and then potentially externally. So that's why not only do we use all of these lovely tricks, but we have to Absolutely. Answer that question. Every single part of the question. Absolutely. Get in all of the points from the evaluation criteria that they might have shared with us and make sure we give them all the evidence. So even if they want us and they don't quite know why, we've given them the case that they can take forward. So, yeah, you have to cover all of that off as well.
0: Yeah. It's a lot to navigate. Um, Let me ask you this, Eve, in your website bio, uh, you Mm. talk about how asking so what is an important skill in bidding. Tell tell me about that. What, What do you mean by that?
1: So much of what we present and write is not focused on influencing customers. So many proposals or presentations start out with, hey, we're massive and we've got 6,000 offices and I'm amazing and you really should buy from us. (laughs) So using so what helps us actually get to the heart of the issue of what's going to matter. So I I thought, actually, let's, let's try this and you might not like it, but let's try it. So give me a benefit that Memeo can deliver.
0: Um, so instead of having to uh, work on the logistics of delivering curriculum, mm-hmm. training organizations can go out and sell more of their curriculum, generating mm-hmm. more revenue for their organization and, um, you know, furthering their, their company mission.
1: Okay, that that's actually really good because you got round to what the benefit is you're delivering to that end customer and what they can then achieve attached right. to their vision. But so much of what we do, and we play that game with a lot of customers, and they'll say, "We've got offices everywhere," and you'll say, "So what?" It's and it's just making yeah. them think the way through. And you've yeah. clearly done the thinking on your value prop, so you've got there.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, listen, I, I can tell you that we could always be better, and, and um, but the impact statements are so important. That's why mm. you know what you're saying here, Eve, is just as a sales guy, right, resonating mm. very strongly with me. Uh, I talked to my sales dev team members about it and, and our AE so often, which, you know, first of all, you don't want the feature dump, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, don't tell them everything about yourself or your product or your platform unless you understand what's going to resonate or what's going to solve a problem or what's going to have an impact. And, you know, a benefit is really only a perceived benefit unless you can tie it to directly how it will impact the customer in a positive way. Right. And it's also good to have them validate that afterwards, too. Right. Say, yeah, that's, in fact, important to me versus important to you as the seller. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And so, what is a, a simple way of getting what you've talked about is very sort of sophisticated sales management that salespeople understand. But if you're talking to someone who's trying to do a feature dump on you, so what is a nice way to draw that out of them yeah. and get it? And it, it's, it's a very mean review comment as well. Just right. So, what?
0: Yeah. Customers and prospects' times is valuable right? Show them that you believe it's valuable by, you know, directing your your pitch and your problem solving to things that actually matter, resonate and have impact, right? And if you don't, you're wasting somebody's time in many respects. Absolutely. One like thing that. you
1: just triggered with um, your mention of validating with the customer. I think that's brilliant because that just triggered another thought about the IKEA effect. So IKEA, lovely flat pack furniture. We all love mm-hmm. it and adore it. <laughs> Basically this effect is we see more value in something we've been part of building. So you put that terrible bookcase together. You think it's an amazing bookcase and it's really valuable than if you just bought it as it was. So we, we want to use that. So if we, take that value prop or, or those win things to our customers and say to them, is this right? And they help us tweak it and they help us change it. Then they're complicit in that. And they actually really believe in those, what whatever we come up with in the end. So that's really valuable if you can get their fingerprints on it.
0: Yeah. And you can do
1: that with teams as well. Involve those people who like to throw rocks in a bid team and they can then become complicit in it and actually value what you're doing more.
0: Yeah, involve the the, the tractor, so to speak, in in, in the problem-solving process, and they might buy in along the way. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, because they help build that little IKEA bookcase.
0: It's so true. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've thought that a finished product of mine was way better than it actually was. So it's ringing true to me, Eve, uh, and I can think of uh, instances where that's been true for others too. So, so, so let's talk a little bit about the seller. Uh, you know, let's kind of flip it uh, to to the other side of the process. Let's talk about. Um, these teams, right? You talked about taking mm. advantage of some of these psychological um, realities that folks know and, and maybe some folks don't, but it's a complicated process to, to kind of navigate this multifaceted, multi-stakeholder team that goes mm. into making bids, right? You can have a salesperson, a manager, a writer, an exec, a subject matter expert. and They're kind of committees that can get large. So. Yeah. What, you know, what insights do you maybe have about the psychology of these groups that are important to know when trying to go in and be effective in your bid writing?
1: In my role as a sort of bid director, as was, it, that job was about managing 30, 60 people all in the same Mm -hmm. same direction, doing the right things to get that quality up. And and your job was not so much managing the detail, but keeping the wheels on and putting them back on. And that's mostly about people. It's about managing communications and expectations and fixing things. But there's also, there's there's key things like win strategy work. You'll get 10, seven people in a room and you'll be notoriously optimistic and we got this natural bias to look on the bright side of life. So we'll get in a room and we'll think about our SWOT and our competition and all of that great stuff to try and come up with a win strategy. And we're just too positive and too optimistic as a group. So we've got things like um, there's a technique called a pre-mortem. And this takes advantage of negative thinking just to counteract. So a bit of a yin-yang thing going on there with the win strategy. And what it is, is you use this thing called prospective hindsight, which is a lovely science term. What it is, is imagining an event has already occurred. So you think about the bid and you say, in six months' time, we've lost this bid what has happened? And it's the phrasing of those words as well that help. And doing that and making a team not do that usual witch hunt of looking backwards, lessons learned, but looking forward and saying, why will we win? What have we done? What what didn't we do? And that Actually, it was researched by um, a bunch of people, Mitchell, Russo, and Pennington, and they found it increased the ability to correctly identify reasons for the future outcomes by about 30%. And twice as many of those little ideas that they came up with were action-based rather than sort of vague. Because in lessons, you'll be vague about what happened because nobody wants to pin anything on anybody too much. Yeah. <laughs> but you're looking forwards. you in this hypothetical world and you can actually think of good reasons and those for us in a bid are going to be reasons we lose and we can then we've got time we've got time to mitigate those risks and actually try and win because we got better ideas and there are risks that we can mitigate so that's something we can use which is all about that optimism of win strategies you spin it on the other side and you actually work out ways to stop us losing as well
0: interesting and having that, you know, it's interesting that the foresight is actually more helpful than the potential hindsight in this case, which is really actually intriguing to think that you can, you know, look at it from that lens and be more effective when you have maybe even more data um, in yes. the hindsight, way, you know, in the hindsight case.
1: Uh, yeah, but with, with those that hindsight, that backwards looking lessons, it, you've got what actually happened and the relationships in the team and nobody wants to point at anybody or you're so busy pointing at everybody else you're not actually being rational it just changes the way you approach it so it gives you better outcomes
0: that's very interesting. I would never have thought that to be the case. But now that you're describing it, it makes tons of sense to me that the introspection might be clearer, you know, without of all yeah. of that other things to navigate or, or to manage with the, the hindsight like you're talking about. the Interpersonal relationships, the work that's been done collaboratively, yeah. independently. That's that's very intriguing. Um, let me ask you this, Eve. You know, there's all these different stakeholders, as you said, mm-hmm. can be you said 60 plus in one case. You know, I'm thinking of even smaller teams. But regardless, in your opinion, who should own the RFP process?
1: Okay, so this is complex sales, not nice, simple transactional stuff. So there's got to be a bunch of people involved and they've got slightly different focuses. But the ultimate owner of the process of getting the RFP through the door and the deal done is the bid director. Okay, And obviously terminology changes across organizations. So that might be the bid lead, the bid manager, the capture manager, whatever you want to call them. Yep. That bid director is the big dog that owns the whole process from when they're assigned to the handover of the signed contract. And by process, I mean, they're the ones that decide what we're going to do when and how we're going to do it. Usually, they're really experienced people who know which rules they can break. So, You've got that solution that's being developed by whatever the solution lead architect is. The bid director owns the process of making sure they do their job, they do their costing, they do their risks, and it's handed over. Your sales, BD, however you want to call them, They own that win strategy and the direction of that sale, and they own that and drive that through. But the bid director owns the process of making sure they develop a strategy, they test that strategy, and then whatever comes out is woven throughout the proposal, presentation, pitch, negotiation, whatever you're doing. So bid, sales, and solution are are those critical three roles that need to work together. But when you've got a complex sale, that process of getting to a signed contract that's handed over to delivery is run by that bid director. And if you get a bid lead, and I'll get passionate on this one, but if you get a bid lead or proposal manager who says all they do is get the RFP done and then they disappear once it's submitted, just get rid of them and find somebody else because their focus is just on that submission. And all they care about is getting a document through the door. So they'll drive progress to that point because that's what they're measured on. And then ignore the quality or the solution delivered. So you're going to lose bids and anything you do win is going to be impossible to deliver. So by all means, have a proposal manager concentrating on the document, but they don't own the process. That's owned by someone who is on the line for delivering the contract and everything that feeds into it.
0: You know, the the more that we're talking about it, and even from, you know, my own experiences, it it is like managing a a symphony of sorts, right? Mm. There are just so many different uh, contributors, points of view, and I think you're right, right? There, folks have to own different components of mm-hmm. what the bid is, what you're trying to achieve long term, and also, you know, what is the ultimate physical deliverable here that needs to get through the mm-hmm. door, as you said. So let me ask you this: you know, we've talked a lot about the psychology behind the buying committee and also on uh, the selling side in these complex scenarios. Mm-hmm. Is there maybe a, a psychological trick that you would suggest salespeople use in less complex? sales scenarios, right? Like what is maybe a trick that you guys use that more folks should use on smaller deals that would be really helpful? Ooh, active.
1: even Even when you're doing other parts of the process, so, so your call planning. Mm-hmm. I hope you all call plan for every call you're going to have, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your call planning. So think about how you can get that person you're going to be talking to involved in creating something to take advantage of that Ikea effect. So yeah. you're using what we've talked about with the Ikea effect, but you're thinking, can I get them to help me create something so they get some ownership and see value in it? And it's just another thing to put through that call cool plan as well. Yeah. Um, deal marketing. If, if you people in marketing, they, They can use that mere exposure effect where you you repeat a phrase or a word or a picture and an image because you want people to remember it. So all of these techniques, because they're about humans and and the way people think and the way we're biased, then you can use them across different deals and different ways of approaching things.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let me ask you this. What's the best way for the sales stakeholder to be a value throughout the bid process? They've gotten the, the, the customer to the table, potentially. Mm-hmm. And how can they continue to be a contributor um, as you're getting towards you know a completed bid for maybe a large, complex deal?
1: Oh, absolutely. Be that voice of that client that they know and love because they can bring to the table what that client cares about, what's keeping them up at night, what their pain points are, because that drives the solution and the words and everything else we do. So they just have to be that client throughout that process and say, guys, no, that's wrong. You're going, "I, I don't care about that. It doesn't resonate. Bring it back. So yeah, they sit there, they be the client in the room and keep that direction for that client through everything.
0: And it makes me think of just, you know, so many people will kind of debate, what's the most important part of the sales process, right? Thinking about smaller and even more complex deals. And to me, the answer is very often the discovery process, right? Mm. If you don't understand and discover the right, you know, pain points, as you said earlier, Mm -hmm. or objectives or priorities of your prospect, you know, all of this becomes sort of moot, right? Because you're not not attracting the prospect in the ways that they want to be attracted and becomes less affected.
1: Absolutely. You're just giving them bland boilerplate or or marketing material. You're not selling.
0: Yeah. So I guess the takeaway there is for even young and, and older sales folks alike do complex and thorough discovery because if you don't mm-hmm. the, the 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 floor could come out from underneath you later on in the deal and I've seen it plenty of times so are there any common mistakes that you see bid writers make often that might be easily avoidable like what do, what do you see in terms of pitfalls um, when you're dealing with some of your customers
1: it comes to what you've just been talking about is it's that knowing the customer enough to be able to to tailor it to them because you you see so many executive summaries start out thank you for the chance to bid on this this is how who we are and this is how we deliver and this is all about the offices we have all over the world and it's not talking to the benefit and the impact you're going to have you absolutely have to do that and it's easy to talk about ourselves. So that's what we fall into and that's what we write about. And we need to every single time bring it back to that client and what they want.
0: Good points. I guess my last question would be you know, we're in very unique times right now, right? I think um, buying teams used to probably collaborate on a lot of these bid reviews and analysis mm-hmm. together in office. Right? Mm -hmm. Not always, but often would be able to in real time, um, you know, work together on, you know, processing these and making decisions uh, on how their company is going to buy. Has the fact that everyone's kind of separated and that dynamic isn't in play as much as it was previously, has that changed at all how, you know, you and your teams are, are choosing to write your bids?
1: The way you've talked about it made me think more about that dialogue phase that we have between the customer team and the selling team, when you're in complex deals and you're trying to go through a long piece of dialogue, we used to be in the room and we used to be able to use psychology, use relationships in a very different way. And when all of this happened, dialogue changed massively. You might have planned three weeks of detailed sessions with your customer. And now they were trying to be really formal, but you can't be quite so formal through Teams or Zoom or whatever you're using. You have to break down those barriers a little bit more. So weirdly, going online has changed, in my experience, the way that dialogue has worked and customers have broken down some of that formality because it's so much harder not being in the room to do that. Negotiations are similar. It's just changed the way we do it.
0: It has, and I think um, you know some areas of the process are adjusting more quickly than others. Mm. I think it's going to have uh, an effect on you know how the sales process changes changes both in simple and complex scenarios for years to come. So, um, absolutely, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But Eve, this has been incredibly insightful. I found all this to be very fascinating. Um, if I'm thinking about you know some of the takeaways that I have, and, and maybe the audience will have is You know when you're working with, uh, you know, buying committees, make sure that you're leveraging what we know about human psychology. Right? Use it to your advantage to write bids Mm -hmm. that are going to resonate and going to um, leave takeaways with your audience. Also, as a, a seller, you need to understand your prospect or your customer. You need to know what's important to them. You need to know what their priorities are because that's how the bid should be written and will be most effective. If you don't have that, um, you're starting from a disadvantage. And then finally, always ask, so what? Right? (laughs) So what? What's the there there, right? Would be another way to put it. But I think if you're asking that question, you'll probably eliminate a lot of fluff in your bids and get right down to the points that have impact uh, for your audience. So- A lot of great stuff there, Eve. I want to thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eve. Talk of the Trade is hosted by Mimeo, the better way to print. Find out more at www.mimeo.com.